Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. Folks, today I want to talk to you about one of my favorite places in the world. A town in southern Pennsylvania that became one of the most infamous battlefields in the world. Gettysburg. As soon as you hear that town's name, you know it's significant. During the Civil War, it became the largest battle ever fought in the Western Hemisphere. A combined total of more than 150,000 men fought in and around the town of Gettysburg, which was home to just about 2,500 people. For the first three days in July, the armies of the Potomac and Northern Virginia fought for victory. By battle's end, there were more than 50,000 casualties, a third of those engaged. The battle altered the course of the war, as it marked the second and final time the Confederacy ever tried to invade the North. This loss and the surrender of Vicksburg on July 4, 1863 marked the true end of the beginning for the Confederacy. The first time I visited Gettysburg, I was just a little kid, and I fell in love with the place. My dad, as many of you know who listen to this podcast, was a big history buff, and he loved Gettysburg from an early age himself. Since my first visit, I've been back several times and have loved every time I step onto that hallowed ground. Millions of people from all over the world visit the National Battlefield every year. It is the most visited battlefield of the Civil War and is the final resting place of more than 3,500 Union soldiers who were killed there. Some Confederates still remain, but were mostly reinterred in cemeteries throughout Virginia, Georgia, and the Carolinas. The battlefield became even more infamous when in November of 1863, President Abraham Lincoln gave a short speech at the dedication of the National Cemetery. The Gettysburg Address is now considered to be one of the most impactful speeches in U.S. history. Gettysburg has inspired dozens of books, a very successful movie made in 1993 with an all-star cast, songs, podcasts, graphic novels, papers, the list could go on and on. So many have covered the history of the battle because they love to preserve the history and share it with others, which is my intent as well. In fact, I'll be taking some friends there in the near future and lead them around the battlefield as it will be their first time ever visiting. One day, I'd even love to lead tours there, not as a National Park Ranger, but merely as someone who loves that place and wants others to fall in love with it as well. Taking friends and letting them explore without time constraints is my goal. So if you are ever interested in going there, please let me know, and I'd love to guide you around there. Now, since this battle is so significant and vast, I'm going to break it into two parts. The first episode will cover the days leading up to the battle, day one, and the beginning of day two. 
Part two, which will be coming soon, will cover the rest of day two, day three, the retreat made by the Army of Northern Virginia, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and the significance of the history and why it is still so visited more than 150 years after the battle took place, and why men on both sides are revered with such awe there. Resources used in this podcast will include gettysburgfoundation.org, nps.gov forward slash gettysburg, destinationgettysburg.com, wikipedia.org forward slash battle of gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln Online, forward slash Lincoln, forward slash speeches, forward slash Gettysburg. History.com, forward slash topics, forward slash American Civil War. Encyclopediavirginia.org. Gettysburg official YouTube page. Clips from the 1993 epic film Gettysburg. Music composed for the film by Randy Edelman. From Manassas to Appomattox, the memoirs of James Longstreet. The Stars and Their Courses by Shelby Foote, amongst others. As I have said in previous episodes, this podcast will be dealing with graphic content due to the nature of the topic, but I would still encourage you to listen with your kids and let this be their first taste to one of the most significant American stories known to man. Some of the sound clips I use may include some language, but it is significant to the story, so I will not be editing them out. Before I begin, I want to take a real quick moment here. There's always a lot of controversy when it comes to talking about the Confederacy, especially recently. In this story, I'll be portraying both sides with honor, as I have a lot of respect for many men on both sides. Some like to disparage anything and everything the South stood for. While I disagree with their main stance of wanting to maintain slavery, I do understand why so many men joined the Confederate Army. So don't come to me and start tramping on the Confederacy because I will not oblige you by listening. If you come to me with facts and knowledge of the war between the states, then I will hear you out, and there's a good chance I might even agree. I just want to put that out there, because all too often, people shoot their mouths off about topics they don't fully know other than the headlines, or biased reporting. As I've said many, many times, the whole goal of this podcast is to bring you stories that have either become forgotten or not taught properly. The topic of the Civil War has become the latter, and that sends me and every other historian who loves that period in history. Probably because we weren't there to see all the carnage firsthand. Alright now, let's fall in the line and begin the march into history and relive the Battle of Gettysburg. 20th Maine! Forward! By the beginning of June 1863, the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, General Robert E. Lee, was feeling confident. He had just dealt a heavy blow to the Federal Army at Chancellorsville, and he decided now would be a good time to launch an invasion of the North through Maryland into Pennsylvania and then down to Washington, D.C. He knew, however, it was going to be a challenge. He would be invading without his right arm, Stonewall Jackson who had died from his wounds after the Battle of Chancellorsville. The corps he had alone commanded had been split into two individual corps, now commanded under his generals 
Richard Old Baldy Yule, and A.P. Hill. They were new to commanding such a large force of men, so they would have to be molded into their roles. He was reassured, though, by the thought of his first corps commander, General James Longstreet. He was his old war horse, the man having served under him since their time down in Mexico in the 1840s. Their goal was to invade the North, cause enough havoc in the state to perhaps have the Federals call reinforcements from the West and relieve the siege of Vicksburg, which was becoming dire for the Confederates trapped there. Their final destination would be Washington, D.C., where President Abraham Lincoln resided with his war cabinet. Lee knew that the Federals would chase after them as soon as they realized they were gone, and they would eventually meet somewhere above Washington. Where and when was yet to be decided. But wherever they met, Lee was confident he would destroy the Northern Army once and for all, and after he had accepted their surrender, he would march his army into Washington and give President Lincoln terms of surrender and peace between the United States and the Confederate States of America. In Washington, Lincoln was fed up. Yet again, the general he had promoted to the commander of the Army of the Potomac was not following through with his orders. Joe Hooker was a good combat leader, but it was in the lull of battle that he lacked proper skills. He had put up with this for two years, and enough was enough. He wanted a skilled leader who could put the pedal to the metal and get the job done to crush the rebel army and restore the country to peace. And he had just the man who could do it. Major General John Reynolds. He was a skilled combat leader who had been in the army for over 20 years. He was the general of three Union Corps comprising of the entire left wing of the army. He was highly skilled and seemed the perfect choice. So in early June, Lincoln met with Reynolds to offer him the command. Reynolds knew leadership needed to be changed, but he did not want the job if he had to answer to politicians in Washington about which move to make and when. Wish we had more generals like him today. Lincoln wanted him, but could not agree to his demands, so Reynolds respectfully declined the offer. Over the next few weeks, Lincoln looked over the other generals who he thought would make a good choice, and on June 28th, he settled on General George Meade. Meade was stunned by the order. Note, not offered, ordered. He thought he wasn't qualified enough and thought others should have been given the command, but instead of trying to argue, he did the best he could. June 28, 1863, was his first day as General of the Army. July 1st, the opening shots of the Battle of Gettysburg commenced. The early days of June, the Confederates were preparing to march north. They would use the Blue Ridge Mounds to shield their army from detection, with Jeb Stuart's cavalry leading the way to provide valuable intel of terrain, fortifications, and the Federal Army they thought they were invincible. Lee's confidence in their invincibility passed down to every general and then every rank below them. The Army of Northern Virginia moved quite swiftly, and by the middle of June, parts of the Army had taken control of many Pennsylvanian and Maryland towns, including Chambersburg and Cashtown. Ewell's men were at the front and even reached the outskirts of Harrisburg, while Jubal Early's cavalry swept through the Pennsylvanian countryside, raiding towns of surplus goods and supplies. This included a small town about 30 miles north of the Pennsylvania-Maryland border, Gettysburg. Bringing up the rear of the army was General Longstreet, and he was a skilled tactician. He had been a soldier for more than half of his life, and he knew what positions looked good and what did not. 
he also was extremely cautious. He knew the value of intel and also that Stuart was a glory-seeking kind of a man. So he employed the services of a scout named Henry Thomas Harrison. Paying him in gold, he told him not to come back without bringing some intel that was worth noting. Harrison set off and did not come back for several weeks. He reported back to Longstreet on the evening of June 28th with the valuable intel. Your servant, General? You didn't expect to see me, did you? I paid you in gold three weeks ago. What do you got? I got the position of the Yankee Army. You're only a few miles down the road. Whole Yankee Army coming this way, 7 Corps. A few miles? Yes, two brigades of Yankee cavalry down that road about two, four hours away. Behind that, the 7 Corps. 7 Corps, and I put it all on the map. You'd like to see it, about 80,000 men. All 7 Corps. You didn't know any of that, General? You didn't know they was on the move, I bet. You wouldn't be spread out so thin. You'd know they was coming. How you know we're spread out? Oh, listen, General. I'm good at this business. <laughs> Major Sore. Yes, sir. Will you get on over to General Lee's headquarters and uh, you notify him about this? Yes, sir. Longstreet believed Harrison for two reasons. One, he had seen the man's work in Virginia and knew he reported truthfully. And two, he had no other choice. The eyes of the army were with Stuart and he was nowhere to be seen or heard from in days. When leading an army into enemy territory, going in blind is nothing short of madness. Longstreet reported to Lee and informed him of all the intel that Harrison had gathered. He says the lead element is here with the 3rd Corps, a 6th right behind supported by a column of Federal Cavalry, 7th Corps altogether. The 1st and 11th are above Tawnytown, and there's more cavalry two hours east. There may be as many as 100,000 altogether. You believe the man, this Mr. Harrison? No choice. Oh, one other thing. Hooker's been replaced. George Meade's the new commander. Harrison read it in the Yankee papers. George Meade, Pennsylvania man. Meade would be cautious, I think. Take him some time to get organized. Perhaps we should move more swiftly. There may be an opportunity here. Yes, sir. I think we should concentrate here. All the roads converge just east of this gap. And this junction will be very necessary. Yes, sir. I left my spectacles over there. What is the name of this town? Gettysburg. Farewell. Like Longstreet, Lee was none too pleased with the absence of Stuart, and he reluctantly agreed to move on the word of Harrison. They decided to converge all their troops near the town of Gettysburg as it was a place where many roads came together. Lee issued orders to his commanders, and on the days of June 29th and June 30th, the Confederate Army began to turn southeast. On June 30th, Brigadier General John Buford led his division of Union Cavalry over the beautiful terrain of southern Pennsylvania and through the quiet small town of Gettysburg. The alerted citizens hounded him with questions, and he gave simple and short, terse answers to all of them. Once he made it through the town, 
He looked over the terrain, and knowing how close the reps were, he knew a battle was inevitable. Check this sound clip out as to how brilliantly Buford deduced all of this. It is absolutely one of my favorite moments in the movie. Here we go. You know what's gonna happen here in the morning? Sir. Old damn rebel army's gonna be here. They'll move through this town, occupy these hills on the other side, and our people get here, Lee will have the high ground, they'll be the devil to pay. The high ground. Meade will come in slowly, cautiously, new to command. To be on his back from Washington. Wires hot with messages. Attack! Attack! So he will set up a ring around these hills. Then when Lee's army is all nicely entrenched behind fat rocks on the high ground, Meade will finally attack if he can coordinate the army. Straight up the hillside, out in the open, in that gorgeous field of fire. And we will charge valiantly and be butchered valiantly. And afterwards, men in tall hats and gold watch fobs will thump their chests and say what a brave charge it was. Devin, I led a soldier's life. I've never seen anything as brutally clear as this. It's as if I can actually see the blue troops in one long, bloody moment, going up the long slope to the stony top. Already a memory. Odd, set, stony quality to it. As if tomorrow's already happened and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you sometimes feel before an ill-considered attack, knowing it'll fail. But you cannot stop it. You must even take part. Help it fail. Sir. We have 2,500 men. They'll be coming in force. Could be 20,000 coming down that road in the morning. We hold this ridge for a couple hours, we can keep them away. We can block that road till the main body gets here. We can deprive the enemy of the high ground. Well, the boys are ready for a brawl, no doubt of that. The fourth rib to deploy. It's a narrow road they'll be coming down. If we stack them up, it'll take them a while to get on track to get into position. for Reynolds and the infantry to arrive. We hang on to the high ground and we have a good chance to win this fight that's coming. Understood? Yes, yes sir. sir. The Reds will hit us just about first leg. Keep a clear eye. Have the pickets give us a good warning. Now, I know that clip was a little bit on the longer side, but it just goes to show you that Buford was nothing short of a genius. He had found the best ground imaginable to fight on, but he also knew he could only hold off the rebels for a short time unless he got infantry support. After his men were deployed and prepped for battle, he wrote a letter to General Reynolds asking for advice and for reinforcements if possible. Here is the movie clip of Buford's letter to General Reynolds. General Reynolds, my troops are deployed on good ground west of Gettysburg on the Chambersburg Pike. I've sent reconnaissance parties in every direction from which the enemy might be approaching. 
I'm satisfied that A.P. Hill's gore is massed just west of here, back of Cashtown. The enemy pickets are within four miles of my position. Rumor says Yule is coming over the mountains from Carlisle. If true, two Confederate corps will converge upon us in the morning, one from the west and one from the north. Do you want me to hold this position if attacked? Confirmation requested. J.N.O. Buford. On the morning of July 1st, the battle began. How the fighting truly commenced, though, is still being debated. The Lee Confederate Division was that of General Henry Harry Heath. He made the claim he was going into town to get shoes for the troops of his division. But if you recall, I said that Lee's ego was up and it passed down to his generals. The best example is none other than Harry Heath. Gettysburg was not a large town only had roughly 2,500 citizens at the time of the battle, and there wasn't a shoe factory in the town at all. So the only shoes that would have been available would have been in the general store. So you have that scenario. Throw in a secondary scenario. General Jubal Early's cavalry had already been through the town, and with their supplies and rations being low due to the war-torn fields of Virginia, they would have acquired any and all supplies they could get their own hands on. Paying, of course, in worthless Confederate dollars or promissory notes. These blue holes through Heath's story about going to Gettysburg to buy shoes. Now you come to the real reason and the one that Heath would never admit to. He wanted to see some action, and soon. He had seen action at Chancellorsville, but his actions had been criticized. Not enough to prevent him from being promoted, but enough to raise his ire. He wanted to redeem himself and his boys, and they were just as much up for the task as he was. So on the morning of July 1st, he sent two brigades in force towards the town in a reconnaissance mission, and were met headlong by the dismounted cavalry of General Buford. He too had been waiting for a fight, but this time, instead of constantly fighting on bad terrain, he held the best ground possible and was being attacked by two brigades out of an entire division. The battle began at around 7.30 in the morning when the Virginians first made contact with a small contingent of cavalry. As they continued down the road, they were met with a full might of Colonel Gamble's brigade. This slowed the Rebs down as the Yanks put up one heck of a fight. One reason this might have been different from other battles is that for the first time, the Union troops were fighting unequivocally on northern soil. And I think this may have been why they fought harder than in battles in Virginia. This time, they were fighting on their home turf, and they weren't about to give an inch. For roughly three hours, Buford's division held off the advancing Confederates. At one point, he saw his right side was getting hit harder than those on the left, so he ordered Colonel Devon to link his men with those of Colonel Gamble. Then, with their reserves fully engaged and their ammunition starting to run low, Buford still waited anxiously for the arrival of General Reynolds. That flank. Just when it seemed like Buford would have had to order a retreat, General Reynolds galloped onto the field with his corps close behind. Sir, it's General Reynolds! Just his presence alone was enough to move Buford to tears of happiness and relief. 
In his camp a few miles away, Robert E. Lee heard the sound of cannons in the distance. This was not to his liking at all. He had expressed his orders very clearly. Avoid all contact with the enemy till their army was concentrated. Someone had not followed his orders. Inquiring of his aide, Major Taylor, he learned of General Heath's motives to acquire shoes from the town. He did not like the sound of battle with his army in pretty much every direction. And with every passing second, he grew more perturbed that Stuart had left him deaf and blind in enemy territory. He decided to ride to the front and figure out what was happening and why. Back on the battlefield, Reynolds knew the Rebs would be mounting a heavy offensive to push Buford's worn and tired troops off their position. So after receiving Buford's intel about what he was up against, he ordered two of his corps forward to the front with all possible speed. Amongst his corps was the infamous Iron Brigade, formed from regiments of the western states of Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan. These men had proven themselves in battle time and time again. They earned their nickname from none other than George McClellan when he saw them fight at South Mountain, saying of them that these men must be made of iron. There were 1,883 men in the Iron Brigade, and they immediately went into action and began repulsing the rebels back. Reynolds rode to the front encouraging his men and personally yelling orders. At one point he saw the rebs starting to finally give way and he yelled to his boys, Forward men! Forward for God's sake and drive those fellows out of those woods! As his men swarmed past him, a lone rifle shot echoed across the noisy battlefield. Reynolds lurched in the saddle. Then, without a sound, he fell from his horse. His aide jumped down and ran to him, trying to rouse his commanding officer and help him to a field hospital if necessary. But then, as he lifted his head, he felt moisture. He pulled his hand away and saw his glove was soaked in blood. Major General John Reynolds, commander of the 1st, 3rd, and 11th Corps, who only a few weeks prior was offered command of the Army of the Potomac, was dead. He was 42 years old. The Iron Brigade saw their general fall, but instead of turning tail and retreating, they fought on. Valiantly they fought, and their immediate actions slowed the rebels down in their advance till more Union troops came up. The Rebs knew they were up against a fierce opponent in the Iron Brigade. They recognized them by their black hats, which were the brigade's dress hats for parade and formal events. In battle, they appeared even more menacing with them on as there was also an ostrich feather on the side of the hat. Yeah, that might sound silly to us, but back then, it proved very effective. As the fighting continued, the Iron Brigade suffered heavy casualties. Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin described the fighting as follows. Men were being shot by 20s and 30s and breaking ranks by falling or running. But the boys crowded in right and left towards the colors and went forward. The other four regiments fought just as hard and held the rebels back for most of the day. Despite their losses, they still managed to capture hundreds of prisoners, mainly from James Archer's brigade, even capturing General Archer himself, 
who had become exhausted from the constant forced marches and the extreme heat. He had taken shelter in a thicket, but then was captured. They were also able to capture the battle flag of the 2nd Mississippi Regiment. If you've listened to the Flag Day episode of my podcast, you will understand why a flag's capture was so significant. But in the end, the Iron Brigade was forced to retreat through the town and to the heights beyond it. Of the 1,883 men in the brigade, only 671 reported that evening. A casualty rate of more than 60%. The other devastating statistic about the casualty rate was that these men all came from the same towns. They were not split up from all different parts of the country. A regiment was usually formed from one town. So all of the men lost knew who was missing, and that made the return back to the town all the more heartbreaking, knowing how many would not be going with them. While that number is high and devastating, other companies would suffer even higher percentage of casualties during the course of the battle. When Lee made it onto the field late in the morning, he encountered General Anderson, and as he assessed the terrain, he briefly said, I cannot think of what has become of General Stewart. Here lies how critically important Stewart's cavalry division was to Lee as he marched north. General Heath then came up and asked his superior if he should attack. Lee replied, No, not yet. Longstreet is not yet up with his call. But then he changed his mind when he saw that his men were close to taking the field and Early's cavalry was sweeping down from the north, throwing more of the Federals into confusion. And as if in a dream, it seemed very similar to that of 2nd Manassas and Chancellorsville. Throwing caution to the wind, he ordered Heath and Pender to sweep the field. The men turned and spurred their horses and galloped away, ordering their commands forward. The Federals fought hard and bitterly at first, along McPherson's Ridge, but then retreated in panic in and through the town of Gettysburg. Their artillery continued to fire, inflicting casualties on the Confederates as they charged. Heath cheered his boys on as they drove the Federals back. He stopped and waved his sword over his head. Come on, boys! They're running! They're running! They were crossing Willoughby Run, and another volley of cannon fire began raining down on them. Heath had just gotten his horse going again when he suddenly flew out of the saddle. He lay completely still as if dead but no wounds were visible on his body. His staff realized he wasn't dead, but merely knocked out. A shell fragment had torn a hole in his hat and would likely have killed him had it not been for a miscalculation by Heath prior to leaving Virginia. He had needed a new hat and finally gotten it. The only problem was it was too big for him, so he accommodated by putting folded newspaper underneath the sweatband to make it fit properly. This little trick ended up saving his life, but he was knocked out for the remainder of the battle. Heath's men kept going and drove the federal troops through the town and captured a large number of prisoners. It was now mid to late afternoon and soldiers from both sides were close to collapse. As Lee watched through his binoculars, he saw the boys in blue in total disarray and retreat. Heath's temporary successor and General Pender were following his orders charging forward. Jubal Early's cavalry had successfully broken through the federal reinforcements of the 11th Corps. The field of battle belonged fully to the Confederates at this point. 
All of this bolstered Lee's confidence all the more that he would be successful in this invasion and that the war could possibly be over in just a few days. Seeing the heights beyond the town, Lee knew that if the Federals made it a stronghold, it would be a very hard hill to take the next day. He sent an order to General Yule to take the hill, Cemetery Hill, if he thought it practicable, but do not bring on a general engagement. This order, he assumed, would be carried out just like Stonewall would have done. But Yule did not take it, as he thought he should have support from A.P. Hill's corps in order to do so. Lee had already asked Hill if his men were able to support any other advanced, and Hill reported his men were exhausted and unable to do so. Lee knew from the past that Hill always got the most out of his men and would always push them to the breaking point. So if Hill reported his boys were done, Lee believed him. The catch with the order to Yule was when he received the order, he was near the rear of his command and could not personally see the terrain as Lee had seen. He was still green when it came to commanding a corps, and he did not think it wise to fully engage his men after a hard march in the summer heat to go right into battle near the closing of the day. He decided against the idea of taking the hill. This would later prove costly to the Confederates. It was close to 5 p.m. when Longstreet arrived and congratulated Lee on his success. Lee then went on to explain what had transpired as old Pete looked over the field with his binoculars. After he had finished his observation, he nodded with approval and said with extreme confidence that this is exactly what they had hoped would happen when they left Virginia. This is almost perfect. Now we got them where we want them. Let's move south and east down the road, get between them and Lincoln, find some good high ground, and then they'll have to hit us. They'll have to. Then we have them, General. Then we have them. You mean disengage? Well, sir, I've always been under the impression that it was our strategy to conduct a defensive campaign wherever possible in order to keep the army intact. Granted, but the situation has changed now. In what way? We've already pushed them back. They're on the run, vacating the town. How can we move off to the south and the east in the face of the enemy? What are you thinking, General? Maybe we should not have fought here. I know that, but we have prevailed. The men have prevailed. Yes, sir, they have always done that. But in the morning, we may be outnumbered and they'll be entrenched on the high ground. But if we move south to Washington, they have to pursue us and then we can fight on ground of our choosing. But the enemy is here. We did not want the fight, but the fight is here. How can I ask this army to retreat in the face of what they have done this day? Not retreat, sir. Redeploy. Our guns will move them off that hill. Or you will push him off. But if Meade is there tomorrow, I cannot move this army away. No, sir, I will attack him. This is one of the most important moments of the battle, in my opinion. As Longstreet openly disagreed with Lee about what their strategy should be. If Lee had indeed listened to Longstreet, I believe the Battle of Gettysburg would have been just a days-long engagement. And the true battle would have taken place further south, possibly in Maryland, where rebels could have had a better defensive position, as Longstreet pointed out. But Lee's dander was up, and as you heard, he refused any notion of leaving the field. I do want to mention this, and I will repeat it in different moments throughout the continuation of the episode and the following episode. God was at work when this occurred. I have no way to corroborate that, but I have thought long and hard when it comes to moments such as these. You see, generals and politicians on both sides during the Civil War were devout Christians. Some may try to argue that point given certain circumstances, but I fully believe that. Lee, Longstreet, McClellan, Rosecrans, Jackson, Stuart, 
The list is endless. But God knew the outcome of the war long before any human being did. As Lee constantly beat the Federals throughout the first two summers of the war, armies that were better manned and better equipped, he had to believe this was ordained. Just like the Israelites constantly beat back their enemies as they took the land of Canaan. So when Lee made it to Gettysburg, he thought he was invincible, just like the Israelites thought when they attacked the city of Ai. But then things began to happen that Lee could not understand. That night on the Federal lines, Union generals were confident in their position. After Reynolds had been killed, Meade was not informed of it until several hours later. But when he was, he immediately ordered General Winfield Scott Hancock to go and take over Reynolds' command. Hancock rode part of the way in an ambulance so he could pour over the maps he had of the area before mounting his horse to get there faster. Hancock was very satisfied with the Federals occupying the high ground. By the time Meade arrived, it was the dead of night, and he couldn't see anything in order to make a definite plan as to what to do. But he trusted Hancock and accepted his word. Meade would get some sleep for a few hours. Then, in the middle of the night, he rode out to inspect the terrain, just before dawn. After making his observations, he decided it was the perfect place to stand and fight at all costs. Before Meade had arrived, though, a worn and tired out John Buford arrived at Union headquarters. He reported to General Hancock. General Hancock? How are you, John? I'm all right. The gauges are pretty shot up, though. They can get refitted. Right, I'll see to it. We know what you did this morning. That was one hell of a piece of soldiering. Thank you, sir. Where do you want me in the morning, man? I want you to hold your position on the extreme left. Get some rest if you can. We may need you in the morning. Jeb Stewart's still on the prowl out there someplace. Yes, sir. I included that last bit for a personal reason. It often makes me think of my dad. So, John Buford just leans on the cannon, looks up into the sky, and mentions those words to General Reynolds. And every time I see that, it just makes me think of saying something similar to my dad. So, that's why I included that in there. By the next morning, Lee was still constriving a battle plan. He had discussed with his other generals Longstreet's idea of redeploying around Union lines. Ewell, Rhodes, and Early all strongly disagreed, and Lee eventually decided to stay and fight. So after looking at the map and knowing which divisions were close and able to fight, Lee decided on this plan. Ewell would attack to the north, intending to push the Federals off of Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill. Longstreet would attack on the southern end of the Federal lines with his divisions under Hood and McClaws. Pickett's division was still a hard day's march away. 
If everything worked out the way Lee planned, the Federals would be pushed back as it happened the day before, and he would then overwhelm the remaining Federal troops and destroy them. The result? Well, you can find that out in one of two ways. Look up the battle and read some amazing accounts for yourself. And two, keep listening. Part two of the Battle of Gettysburg will be coming very soon. Only on the Snowman Podcast. I would be remiss if I did not mention in the account of the first day of fighting a man whose tenacity was the stuff of legend in his own time. John Burns. A veteran of the War of 1812, he was by this time an old man who resided in Gettysburg during the time of the battle. But due to the war, he had been elected the town constable as younger men were all in the army at the time. When Jubal Early's cavalry came into town in late June, Burns tried interfering with them. They promptly detained him and even threw him into his own jail for a couple of days. When Early and his men departed two days later, he was released. But boy, was his ire up. On June 30th, when Buford and his men rode through the town, he informed them of what he knew. And after the battle started the next day, he helped guide the Federal infantry to where they were needed. After directing more and more Union troops to the front, he decided he wanted to do even more. So, going to his house, he put on his blue swallowtail jacket and stovepipe hat and set out for the front lines. As he made his way, he came across a couple of wounded Federal soldiers, asking them if he could have one of their muskets. They agreed, seeing as how they couldn't fight anymore and this man wanted to. One also gave him his ammo bag, which contained a large number of cartridges. He first reported to the 150th Pennsylvania Regiment, who directed him towards where the Iron Brigade were fighting. After letting them know he was on their side, he lined up with the Iron Brigade members of the 7th Wisconsin, and positioning himself behind a stone wall, he began to take out Reb officers who were on horseback. He fought with them for several hours, being wounded in the leg, arm, and torso. Mind you, this guy was over 70 years old at the time. As the Federals began falling back, they had to leave Burns behind due to him being too seriously wounded. Knowing that where his position was would be overrun, he threw aside his musket and buried his remaining cartridges, and then thought of what could be a good enough story to convince whoever came upon him of why he was there. When Confederates eventually discovered him, he told them he had been wounded in the crossfire after trying to get to a neighboring farm to get aid for his ill wife. They didn't believe his story and just left him there, focusing instead on their own wounded. A Confederate officer at one point did take pity on him and he gave him a blanket and some water to pass the night. The next day, he was helped by a farmer who took him into town, which was now occupied by Confederates, to try and receive aid. He was tended to, although none of the Confederates there believed his story either. Not for an instant. After the armies departed and old John Burns was clear of any danger of dying, he received a hero's fame. His fame spread near and wide. One story even made it to the San Francisco Bulletin. When Matthew Brady came into town to take photographs of the battlefield, he specifically wanted to take a picture of John Burns. You can find this picture via the internet. Just type in John Burns of Gettysburg and you'll see what he looked like. Abraham Lincoln also met Burns when he came to town to deliver his Gettysburg address. Truly, this man became a legend before his own eyes. 
Now, some of Burns' accounts have been disputed, and some of his claims have been identified as false. But the man did what few others would do. Go and fight in a battle for a cause he believed in, despite not being in the army. Getting wounded in a time when that basically meant a death sentence by infection or exposure. Meeting the President of the United States and hearing the Gettysburg Address read for the first time. I think we can cope with his claims and take them to know that he believed them even if his story kept changing over the years. Burns lived till 1872 when he died at the ripe old age of 78. He was buried in the Evergreen Cemetery in Gettysburg. His cenotaph is one word, Patriot. His grave is one of only two which is marked by an American flag flying 24 hours a day. The other is that of Jenny Wade, who was the lone civilian killed during the battle on July 3rd. Her story you'll hear in part two of Gettysburg. Forty years after the battle, the Pennsylvanian chapter of Union veterans erected a statue in his honor and memory. It was placed along McPherson's Ridge, where he fought alongside the boys in blue. When you visit the battlefield and you take the automotive tour, his monument is one of your first stops. This story is resourced via www.thoughtcompany.com forward slash John Burns, civilian hero of Gettysburg. And that will do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Folks, the Battle of Gettysburg is so important and should always be taught to the upcoming generations. If you are interested in learning more about the battle, I strongly encourage you to watch the movie Gettysburg, read Shelby Foote's book, The Stars in Their Courses, which is a detailed account of the battle, and or just looking up the battle and reading the synopsis online. You will not be disappointed. If you would, please consider subscribing so as not to miss out on future episodes, especially part two of Gettysburg, which, as I said earlier, will be coming very soon. You can find the Snowman Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Reason.fm, and YouTube. Also, please share with your family and friends so they get to enjoy it as well. Or, as I always say, just type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? So, I was on the phone the other day with the doctor's office, and they said, in order to send me more information that I needed, they would need a more memorable address. I said Gettysburg. Get it? Gettysburg address. Boy, that would stunk. What we got here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> <laughs>